today on EdgeFX. So, you know, as we say, natural disasters are never natural. They're phenomena. A disaster is what we do before or after this natural phenomenon. Historian Adam Behrman is in conversation with Stuart Schwartz, professor of history at Yale University and author of the book Sea of Storms, a history of hurricanes in the greater Caribbean from Columbus to Katrina, published by Princeton University Press. Behrman and Schwartz discuss the role of race, social inequality, and economics in how societies and governments respond to natural disaster. The discussion spans over five centuries of disaster response and the reverberations of this history today with Hurricanes Katrina and Maria. All right, so we're here today with Dr. Stuart Schwartz, and we are talking about hurricanes and how history can help inform possibly on some of the uh, policies that we make uh, going forward here. We're deep into the thick of uh, the 2018 hurricane season. Um, and with this uh, book, Sea of Storms, we're encompassing a 500-year period stretching from Columbus all the way up through to Katrina. And uh, one of the things that struck me is interesting was some of the different ways in which uh, different societies have understood hurricanes in the past 600 years, uh, starting all the way from the Tainos and the Caribs, the indigenous people to the islands, up through the early Europeans, African slaves, and then modern scientists. So I just wanted to ask you, Dr. Schwartz, uh, what are some of the ways in which these different societies have understood hurricanes in the past 600 years? Well, different societies, of course, uh, have different means of interpretation and uh, ways of interpretation. But I guess you could say that uh, many of these uh, ways of interpretation are, are shared and that uh, over time we've moved from uh, a basically providential idea of uh, of the uh, of natural disasters that is that they are somehow uh, used by uh, divinities to uh, to instruct us or to punish us to a, a more uh, I guess you could you could call it scientific uh, view of these as uh, geophysical uh, phenomena. So in, in a way, we move from an idea that they were somehow a human responsibility. That is, they were being used uh, by the gods to punish us or instruct us to an idea that they were a natural uh, phenomenon caused by, uh, by the system uh, of, of physics uh, of the world. But we, you could actually argue that in recent times, we've come back to the idea that they are, in fact, human-produced. That is, by the, our ideas about global warming and, and all that that implies uh, has put the blame back on human actions uh, in a way different than it was originally in the 15th or 16th century. But uh, it has returned uh, natural disasters to a kind of interpretation that depends on human action. Yeah, so we've kind of come full circle on that. Um, yeah. And it's, it's interesting because the initial idea is that being caused by failures of, of human morals or, or, or human uh, attention to God, whereas now it's more in terms of failed human policies are the, um, are the problem and the cause of the hurricane. So that's it's kind of interesting that we've you know, come all the way around like that. 
Yeah. Of course, they, you know, um, uh, people haven't given up on the idea that they are somehow punishments uh, from God uh, or, uh, or sort of uh, warnings. Uh, and you will still hear those kinds of interpretations given at various times. Uh, so um, I guess you could say that these, these interpretations are overlapping. They don't necessarily replace each other. Uh, could you give some examples of that um, in, in recent well, I th- years? I think the, the really interesting part of the story is that when the Europeans first came to the Caribbean and encountered the hurricanes, they really had nothing to fall back on in their own experience or in their understanding of the world that helped them explain this very much. That is, uh, hurricanes are basically a phenomenon of the of the North Atlantic, uh, of the New World, uh, they are uh, virtually unknown uh, in in Europe. Uh, and so there was nothing uh, either in the Bible or in Aristotle, who they depended on greatly in the, in the Renaissance, uh, to help explain th- this phenomenon. And so early on, uh, Europeans turned to the native peoples of the Americas to, to learn about these destructive winds. Uh, And so they incorporated the experience of the indigenous people that they encountered in the the Caribbean, and they learned from them how to read the signs for the coming of of the storms. But over time, I think what's very interesting about the hurricanes is that because the hurricanes come every year, and they may not come to each island every year, but they come to the region every year, um, it began to undercut the idea that somehow these were punishments for particular sins or particular faults. Uh, the fact the, the Spaniards who were first in the Caribbean thought to themselves uh, and asked uh, quite openly, well, if these are acts of a God that's angry against us on this island, why then does the storm then also hit the next island <laughs> where, where uh, people may live in a in a different way. And why does God always wait until between June and September or June and October to to send these storms uh, if these are uh, his reaction to to our faults or punishment for our sins? And so those perceptions, that that experience began to undercut this idea that these were uh, providential, that these were divine acts and made the Europeans begin to think in other ways about these recurring natural disasters. Absolutely. So talking about how the, uh, the hurricanes kind of altered the spiritual outlook of the Europeans, they also seem to influence a lot of the economic development of the islands as well. Um, could you talk a little bit about how the, uh, the hurricanes may have actually encouraged the development of a plantation economy across the Caribbean? Well, they they both sort of uh, uh, encouraged it, and uh, and uh, also uh, the hurricanes uh, intensified the effects of the plantation economies. Uh, that is, the plantation economies uh, depended on uh, clearing fields so you could plant sugarcane or tobacco or other, other products. Uh, the clearing of the fields, uh, the destruction of the forests. Uh, had an effect on the on the rains that accompanied the hurricanes, on erosion of the soil, uh, and uh, on the 
natural uh, fauna and and flora uh, on the islands, uh, which had adjusted uh, in a kind of ecological relationship to, uh, to each other and to and to the storms. And so, uh, once they had turned to plantation agriculture on uh, on some of these islands, the effects of the hurricanes began to intensify on those islands. And then, too, on many of the islands, which became entirely devoted to plantation agriculture, there was always a shortage of food. And the food shortage was then intensified when a hurricane passed over the island uh, because it destroyed not only the plantation crops, it also destroyed the food crop. Uh, Usually the first few days after the storm uh, aren't bad because all the fruits are are knocked off the, the trees and there's enough to eat. But without refrigeration, etc., uh, that all disappears very quickly and then there's nothing left to eat. And so these people uh, had to seek other sources of, uh, of food. And remember that many of these islands had become slave economies. Uh, and so it was the most vulnerable people on the island, the slaves, who suffered the worst from the effects of the hurricane. And of course, if they suffered, then the plantation system suffered. Uh, And so it creates a a kind of closed circle uh, in which the hurricanes and the plantations and the food shortages are all related to each other. Did the hurricanes encourage the cultivation of some crops over others? Well, uh, the the Tainos, the, the native peoples of the Caribbean, they understood this. They had learned from long experience that root crops gave you some protection. In other words, uh, things like uh, yucca or manioc, uh, which was a staple uh, that they used, which, which is basically the r- roots of a tree, uh, and other things that are still eaten in the Caribbean, like uh, malanga or sweet potatoes or potatoes. Uh, those things gave you a little bit more uh, security uh, because they were less vulnerable to the hurricanes. And so People depended on them and, and planted them. The system of agriculture on place, places like the Dominican Republic uh, were based on these, uh, on these root crops. And eventually the Europeans, English, French, Spanish, learned this as well and mixed their agriculture for foodstuffs between root crops and other kinds of crops in order to have some protection against the hurricane. One of the things you bring up in your book is this, uh, it seems like it happens over and over where... Uh one of the colonies or one of the islands uh, focuses on the development of coffee. The uh, hurricanes come through and they destroy all the, the, the shade trees that are important for coffee growth. And so they, a lot of them tend to switch over to sugar. Mm-hmm. So that, that also seems to be one of those things where the, the hurricane may have helped to, to push the, uh, the plantation economies into maybe more of a, of a, of a brutal system of labor. Well, uh, you know, there are a number of, pl- of times uh, over the course of the 500 years, we have examples of this. There were a series of hurricanes in Cuba between 1844 and 1846 uh, that really uh, destroyed uh, the coffee industry in Cuba. And when it did, the coffee planters, uh, looking to kind of control their losses, they sold their slaves uh, to the sugar planters. And so the intensification of the sugar economy, uh, to some extent, was a result of the destruction of the coffee economy and the movement of the labor force from coffee cultivation into sugar cultivation. And we've got, over the course of history, um, a couple of examples like this. The destruction on, in Martinique, for example, of, uh, of cacao, that's chocolate, 
cacao plant planting because of hurricanes uh, led to the cult, uh, intensification of the cultivation of, of other crops that became eventually the basis of the plantation economy on those islands. Fascinating. An important question that this book raises is what can society learn from a history of disaster responses? So how have different governments responded to hurricanes over the years and which responses seem to work best in helping the largest amount of people? Well, uh, the history here is, a, is an interesting one. Most of the islands, the ones occupied by the British, the French, uh, the Dutch, the Danes, most of those islands in their early stages were given over to individual noblemen or to companies that were developing the islands. That is, these weren't government-run uh, operations. They were uh, privatized to a certain extent or feudalized to some extent. And so when natural disasters happened in the 17th or early 18th century, the government didn't have much to do with it. The government said, well, you know, it's your business. Uh, you've got the responsibility. It's your problem. And so it was relatively slowly that governments got involved in response to natural disasters in most of, most of those islands. It was really only by the middle of the 18th century when those islands became very productive and valuable with the sugar plantation economies, the French islands and the British islands, places like Jamaica and Barbados, uh, that the government then began to see that it was to its interest to, uh, to make sure of uh, the continued health and profitability of those islands. And that's when the government began to actually respond directly to natural disasters. In the 1770s and 80s is really when we begin to see large amounts of money, for example, voted by parliament to be given to places like Jamaica or Barbados in response to these hurricanes, to natural disasters. The one exception to this were the Spanish, because right from the very beginning, uh, the Spanish occupation of places like Puerto Rico, Cuba, and the Dominican Republic was government-sponsored and government-controlled. And so the Spanish, quite early on, the Spanish government often uh, responded to the natural disasters, uh, usually not by giving them uh, any money for repairs, but ra by rather by forgiving taxes for a period of time. In other words, the planters wouldn't have to pay taxes for five years because that that capital would be had to be invested in the repair of their of their plantations. So by the end of the 18th century, most everybody, uh, all the imperial governments had decided that uh, government response to natural disaster uh, that there was some advantage for the governments to do this. But then the question arose: Who do you give the response to? Do you help the people who've uh, the planters? or the people who've lost their homes? How do, who do you give the, the help to? Uh, and how do you control it? And how do you ensure that people won't take advantage of it and use it even though they don't need it? And that becomes the question that dominates the way people think about relief from the 19th into the middle of the 20th century. And it's really not until the 1930s and 40s that we begin to get the modern what we understand now as government response to natural disasters. Yes, you mentioned the 1930s as a watershed in the responses of governments to natural yeah. disasters. Could you elaborate on that? Well, for, for the United States, the, and the United States is really an ex only one example of what was going on in a kind of uh, international level. 
it was really a series of uh, natural disasters that happened in the United States in the 1920s. Uh, there was a couple of uh, hurricanes uh, in uh, Florida, 1926 and 1928. There were great floods in the Mississippi Valley, also in the 1920s. And the uh, idea that the government should step in and take some responsibility was really born at that time. And this led directly into the debates that went on with the creation of uh, the New Deal. This, After all, the 1929, the stock market crash had created a tremendous economic emergency in the United States and in the world. And so there was much debate about what the government's role ought to be. And often in the debates about the New Deal that went on in Congress, people like uh, Robert LaFollette from, from Wisconsin said, what difference does it make to somebody if the if their misery is created by a failed government policy, by the crash of the stock market, or by a flood. Uh, to them, it's the, it's the same misery. And so those kinds of arguments were used in the creation of the, of the programs of the New Deal. And they were linked directly to the government beginning government responses in the 1920s to this series of natural disasters. And this was a, an idea that was growing all over the world. The emergence of a kind of a government response, sympathetic government response to natural disasters, a kind of populism. You can see it all over Latin America, in, in Mexico, of Cardenas, in the Caribbean, and to some extent in the, in the European governments, like the rise of national socialism in, in Germany or um, of the French uh, government's of the of the 1930s, this idea that the government had to respond directly to the people, and therefore the government had a responsibility to the population because they were citizens in response to natural disaster. And bouncing off that, how have issues of race and class tempered government responses to territories in the Caribbean in need of hurricane relief? Well, I, I talk in my book about uh, what I call the greater Caribbean, in which I include the uh, the uh, southeastern United States, I guess up to the Chesapeake Bay, more or less. And in, the, in that part of the world, race is always an issue because of the long history of, uh, of servitude, of slavery uh, that we have in that part of the world, I should say in this part of the world. And so uh, race was never very distant from considerations of, of all kinds of considerations about politics and society, and that applies as well to the response to natural disasters. Even after slavery, after 1834 in the British Islands, many times the governors of the British Islands in the 19th century, and even into the early 20th century, uh, were less than sympathetic after the storms to the population who were the descendants of the slaves, who were now free citizens of the society. And uh, the governor still had the attitudes uh, that these people always want something for nothing. Uh, these people are lazy, they're shiftless, they'll take advantage. And um, I, the book cites a number of cases of governors with those kinds of responses. And it was, wasn't really till after the Second World War that the British government uh, began to change uh, its attitudes about its uh, responsibilities to these uh, societies. And do you think we're seeing any of that still with uh, Hurricane Maria in 2017 at all? Uh, it, it, it certainly comes to mind. We, we certainly saw it in Katrina. And uh, I spent a lot of time in the book with Katrina. The literature on Katrina is enormous. 
But it's quite clear that government response to Katrina was uh, deficient, was slow, and it was a response uh, that depended on a number of factors. The policies of the government, uh, our involvement, other concerns like national security, our uh, foreign policy activities, but also the, an element of race that was involved. And that was quite clear in the photo images that we, uh, we all watched on, on television uh, and the many comments that people made that it looked like uh, scenes from the third world of uh, black people on rooftops surrounded by water waiting for help uh, that wasn't available. And the same can be said about the recent situation in Puerto Rico. That debate is still going on, but Puerto Rican press uh, has con- consistently been critical of its treatment in comparison to the treatment given to places like uh, Florida and Texas after the same hurricane season where the government res- uh, response was much more rapid and much more efficient. Yeah, one of the, the major concerns in Puerto Rico was the, the lack of infrastructure. And I've heard a lot of criticism that the, uh, the electrical grid of the island was not where it should have been before the, uh, the hurricane hit. And that's a, that's a pattern that I see uh, popping up in a lot of these hurricanes is that these, the infrastructure of these islands is always in need of repairs before the hurricane hits. So, you know, as we say, natural disasters are never natural. They're phenomena. A disaster is what we do before or after this natural phenomenon. And so the failure to have an upgraded electrical system in Puerto Rico, which was the result of, of poor repair and poor planning over a long period of time, but which was the immediate result also of the financial situation of Puerto Rico, uh, which is uh, not even in control of its own decisions about its finances. It's now being run by an administrative junta uh, appointed by, by Congress because of its debt situation. And so there was simply no capital to invest in, in the infrastructure of the electrical, electrical system. And the example of Puerto Rico is a good one because right now, where it's clear that Puerto Rico needs a new electrical a grid, a new infrastructure, and that an infrastructure that's dependent not on the existing system of wires uh, on poles, uh, which are susceptible to hurricanes, but needs to be shifted over to things like uh, solar power, is not being done uh, because of the interests of uh, investors and because uh, of legal restrictions on Puerto Rico's ability to uh, redefine or, and reconstruct its own system. And so politics also plays a role in how you can respond and how you can prepare for a natural disaster. And so uh, you can't separate the response from the natural disaster from a series of other phenomena, other situations, the question of social organization, the questions of, of race and inequality, and the question of politics both local and national politics in the instance of uh, Puerto Rico, all of those things interact with each other. And so my book is, uh, although it's about uh, a natural phenomenon and uh, it incorporates a lot of the material of the science of uh, hurricanes, uh, it's really a, a social and political history as well, because you can't really separate those things. Yeah, that brings up a really great quote from your book. I want to read back here real quick. It says, because hurricanes have no respect for international boundaries or cultural divisions, they offer excellent vantage points to examine the influences of policy, culture, and politics on results close in time. 
Uh, I was wondering if you might walk us through how that works with the, the 1928 storm that hit Puerto Rico and Florida, or perhaps uh, Hurricane Flora in 1963 that hit the, the Dominican Republic, Haiti, and Cuba. So the hurricanes, uh, as, I, as the quote says, don't respect the political boundaries, right? The wind goes from one island to the next. It doesn't matter who's in control of the, of the island or of the, the mainland. Uh, 1928 is a example of, of a hurricane, a bad one. This is the hurricane that's called in Puerto Rico the Hurricane of San Felipe, St. Philip, because they give the names to the hurricanes on the Saints Day in which they occur. Uh, that one uh, struck Puerto Rico and then proceeded through the Bahamas onto Florida and passed over uh, Fort Lauderdale, north of Fort Lauderdale, and over Lake Okeechobee in the center of, Flo of Florida, just north of the Everglades. Uh, these hurric this hurricane was very destructive. It was perhaps the worst hurricane that Puerto Rico had suffered. It killed uh, hundreds of people. It destroyed the economy. And the uh, results were, uh, were a total catastrophe. And then when it struck Florida, it passed over the coast and then hit the interior. And the interior was uh, full at that time with West Indian workers who had been brought in to work sugarcane uh, and other products uh, around Lake Okeechobee. And they, the warning was insufficient. They got caught and uh, hundreds of people uh, were drowned in the, the hurricane. The bodies floated into the Everglades uh, for uh, weeks or months after. And so the response in the, in the two places differed considerably. And in Florida, it even differed between the response on the coast and the response in the inland areas where these uh, foreign workers had been brought in, cane cutters who had been brought in from uh, places like Jamaica and the, and the Bahamas. And so there you can see the, the differential in government responses. The 1963 Hurricane Flora is a very good example because uh, it hit Haiti and the Dominican Republic, where it sort of just uh, ripped those places apart, especially Haiti. Hundreds of people died, and the government, which was under uh, Duvalier, gave very little attention to to the the problem and didn't even announce the arrival of the storm because it didn't want to ruin the tourist industry and keep people away. And as a result, hundreds of people lost their lives. And then it struck Cuba, and Cuba had just gone through the Cuban Revolution and the and the missile crisis, and Fidel used the hurricane as a way of showing the efficiency of the revolution. And so an enormous government-sponsored response was, uh, was mustered in Cuba. Uh, the whole country was turned out, tanks, the army, every resource was turned towards demonstrating to the people the efficiency of the revolution. And it worked. They had very little loss of life given the, the nature of the storm, and the recovery was much faster. And it was kind of a lesson to Fidel and to the revolution. Uh, and Fidel, in a number of speeches later on, said that what he wanted to do was to uh, make the spirit of uh, the revolution, the spirit that had been demonstrated in the response to the, hur to the hurricane, that is, make that the spirit of Cuba all the time. And so Cuba has become a kind of model of how relatively poor countries can, by preparation, and by planning, prepare for natural disasters. And the United Nations now uses uh, the, Cuban, the Cuban example. Now it's got its problems because Cuba doesn't give you a choice about evacuating when the storm, if you live near the, the coast, when the storm comes, you're evacuated. There's no question. And so it raises questions about free will and, 
and about communal organization and questions of, of a kind of libertarian nature. But on the other hand, the effects of Cuba in terms of loss of life and in control of loss of property uh, have been very positive. Cuba also in hurricane uh, in the hurricanes of, of 2017 was badly hit, but Cuba's recovery was much faster than the recovery in Puerto Rico. And the point that should be made uh, and has been made by uh, a number of sociologists is that this isn't a matter of communism versus capitalism because Vietnam is a is a socialist country that has a relatively poor record with natural disasters. And Japan is a capitalist country that has a good record in response to natural disasters. So it's not a matter of the nature of the, your economic organization. It's a matter of the commitment of the government to respond. When the government feels it's responsible, what resources is it willing to bring to the crisis. This is one of the problems that we have in this country. FEMA has now become an agency of homeland security. Its interests are in security as much as in the relief of natural disasters. And that was displayed recently in the failures in Puerto Rico. And it was certainly displayed in the failure in, in Katrina. And so we have to ask those kinds of questions. The nature of uh, terrorist attacks is a real threat. But is it as much of a threat as the surety of the return of uh, hurricanes each year uh, to the southeastern part or the Gulf uh, Coast of the United States? It's a question that we have to ask uh, our, ourselves. That also brings up the 1930 hurricane in the Dominican Republic, which helped uh, Trujillo consolidate power, who then went on to rule with an authoritarian fist up through 1961. So how have hurricanes helped these authoritarian leaders consolidate power in the 20th century? Well, th that, that case, 1930, that's the hurricane of San Zanon, and uh, it came right after the election of Trujillo. And Trujillo used it as a, a way of consolidating his power. He claimed emergency powers. And under those emergency powers, he not only provided help for the rebuilding of the city, which they then renamed Ciudad Trujillo, the <laughs> Trujillo city, uh, but he also used it to lock up his political opponents and to bring them under control and then maintain his control uh, for a long time as, as dictator. But you have to remember that since the hurricanes come every year, that uh, certainly uh, uh, it's not surprising that often hurricanes come just before or just after an election. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, and so they always have some political they, they have to be always set in some political context and sometimes uh, can be utilized for political purposes. Yeah, you bring that up near the end of your book with Hurricane Sandy and uh, Governor Christie in the United States. Right. Governor Christie, yeah. It's, uh, it's very curious. After Hurricane uh, Sandy, he remember the scenes we saw of him walking on the beaches of New Jersey right, uh, with uh, President Obama and how much criticism he got from his own party for doing that. But mm -hmm. Governor Christie needed the federal help. And he later talked about the spirit that had been created in New Jersey as a result of Hurricane Sandy and of what his government in the, in the state had done. And so in a very curious way, his discourse in New Jersey and Fidel's discourse in <laughs> Cuba in 1963 were very similar. Uh, and so you have this kind of you know communal organization and communal cooperation. Um, one of the things that, although 
I know that uh, that our president uh, was critical of Puerto Rico, that people need to take care of themselves, et cetera, et cetera. What's really noticeable that happened in Puerto Rico was a tremendous amount of community cooperation uh, and help given of people stepping up and uh, taking care of cleaning up and repairs by themselves, often with very little government assistance for a long period of time. I was recently in Puerto Rico and uh, streetlights in the main city of San Juan eight months after the hurricane, were still not functioning. Half of the streetlights in the city of San Juan on major thoroughfares. You can't imagine a city of that size in the United States allowed to go for eight months without uh, stoplights on its main thoroughfares. So that's an example of the failure of response on both a local and a federal level in the case of uh, the recent hurricane in Puerto Rico. In your opinion, what is the, uh, the major stumbling block for America's response to these hurricanes? Uh, do people of the United States just lack empathy? <laughs> I mean, what's, what's the problem? Here's the problem. The problem is that resources are limited. Preparing mm-hmm. for a hurricane is a crapshoot, right? Because uh, we know that they're going to come every year, but they don't necessarily come to where we are every year. And so you can invest a lot of money in the infrastructure and for five years, get no results for it. And then in year six, when you do get hit, if you haven't taken those five years and put the money in, then you produce the natural disaster. Then you produce the, the negative effects of one of these natural phenomena. And so it's a crapshoot. And governments have to try to balance these things off. You know, what's the probability of a terrorist attack versus the probability of a natural disaster? And where, where are you going to put your resources? And when that, those decisions then are influenced by your attitude towards the people who are the probable victims, uh, your attitude towards the idea of welfare, your other commitments, uh, then that creates the problem. I don't think it's a lack of empathy. Uh, and I think, it, for example, in the case of, uh, of Hurricane Katrina, there was uh, what they called the Cajun Fleet that came in, people from outside of New Orleans who came in with their motorboats and chainsaws, et cetera, to help out after the hurricane. And you have people, uh, you know, first responders from other states uh, that were bussed in immediately. There was a tremendous amount of empathy, a tremendous amount of help. The American people were willing to go uh, and put their, their own lives at risk to help. But there were failures failures of preparation, failures of distribution. And we've seen those failures over and over again in our responses. And uh, we have to make a decision about providing the resources and providing the planning and preparation in order to make our responses better. Your book was published two years before the devastating 2017 Atlantic hurricane season, which spawned Harvey, which dropped about 60 inches of rain on the Houston area caused a massive flooding, Hurricane Irma, which uh, churned up the Florida coast, devastating the, the Gulf Coast of Florida, Hurricane Maria, of course, which hit Puerto Rico, and then Hurricane Nate, which also uh, flooded Costa Rica, was the worst uh, disaster in that nation's history. Uh, what insight can your history of Atlantic hurricanes give us about this costliest season on record? Well, I think that comes back to the question of global warming and climate change. We're still debating that uh, that issue. The present administration uh, doesn't think much uh, of this as a problem. But the debate 
goes on, and the vast majority of meteorologists and people who work on uh, on the climate are convinced uh, that we're going through a period of uh, of increasing danger. We're probably not going to see an increase in the number of hurricanes, but we're going to see an increase in the number of intense hurricanes, category three and above. They're even toying with the idea of creating a new category six because these hyper storms uh, seem to be more frequent. And we should remember that the number of hurricanes in the world that the, the North Atlantic, the Caribbean and the southern part of the United States only receives about 15 or 16 percent of the world's hurricanes each year. Places like the Indian Ocean have a much higher incidence of these storms. And with global warming, we're going to see this phenomenon intensifying not only locally, but globally. And so this is a, a matter of, of great concern. There is one school of thought that says, since we know that poor people and poor nations suffer the worst from natural disasters, the best response isn't to try to control the climate, it's to make people mm -hmm. wealthier. That's th their argument. And so what they want to see then is privatization of everything and uh, unbridled capitalist development because it'll make people wealthier is the argument, and therefore they'll become less susceptible to natural disasters. On the other hand, there's uh, the kind of Cuban response of more investment in preparation in natural disasters. And so we have both a kind of scientific analysis and problem that is debated, and we have political and social and economic aspects of this or visions of this uh, that are also in debate. Uh, so it makes a complex question, but one with a definite material result on the way in which we can live our lives in the the near future. Okay. Did you have any other thing that you wanted to touch on? Well, I think we've handled a, a number of the important issues. I, I will say that the book is just about to come out in Spanish in Puerto Rico, and uh, we've updated the book to include the hurricanes of the, of the last year. So I've tried to, to bring it up to date. But the ultimate question about um, climate change, the intensification of the storms, and how we respond, those questions, uh, I think, remain as live today uh, as they did when we faced them uh, with Hurricane Katrina and then with the hurricanes of 2017. Okay, excellent. Just a, a quick personal question. Did you enjoy writing this book and did you get to travel all over the Caribbean and <laughs> for research? <laughs> yeah, um, I, my, uh, my wife is from Puerto Rico, so I actually spend a lot of time there. Um, I did some uh, research on some of the other islands as well. Uh, and in Europe. And I have to say, I, I learned a tremendous amount. The hurricanes uh, really are a, a peculiar phenomenon in the, in the Caribbean. They're very characteristic of the Caribbean. And there's no aspect of life uh, in the Caribbean that hasn't been affected by them. Uh, and so uh, it was uh, a challenge to write a book over that long a period of time, but one which was very satisfying because I really learned an awful lot. Excellent. Well, thanks so much for, uh, for joining us today. I really appreciate your time. Very good. Thank you very much for asking me to participate. All right. Take care. That was Adam Bierman, historian at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. His guest today was Stuart Schwartz, 
professor of history and author of the book Sea of Storms, a history of hurricanes in the greater Caribbean from Columbus to Katrina, published by Princeton University Press and due out soon in Spanish in Puerto Rico. You've been listening to Edge Effects, a production of CHE, the Center for Culture, History and Environment in the Nelson Institute for Environmental Studies at the University of Wisconsin-Madison. Today's episode was produced by Brian Hamilton and me, Carly Griffith. The music you're hearing is by Julian Lynch. Stay tuned for more podcast episodes in the coming weeks. You can get all of our episodes sent straight to your computer or mobile device by subscribing to the EdgeFX podcast in Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Radio Public, Stitcher, and TuneIn. If you like the show, please leave us a rating and a review, or tell a friend about us. That really helps us connect with new listeners. And come find us on Twitter at EdgeFXMag. As always, keep up with the steady flow of great content about cultural and environmental change across the full sweep of human history at edgeeffects.net.